Hey everybody, Craig and Dara, your host here. This is episode 46 of the Cognicast with our guest today, Maggie Litton. Um, so it's been about a month since our last episode, and the reason for that is the craziness that was November 2013. Uh, of course, there was the U.S. holiday Thanksgiving, but also there was the Closure Conj, which in my personal opinion was awesome. And I wanted to make special mention of thanks to the people, the many people, the surprisingly many people that came up to me at the show and said, hey, I listened to the show and, uh, you know, thanks for the show or gave me feedback or whatever. That was, it was super cool. Um, just really great to meet you all there. And, uh, and I thought it was great. And so everybody can look forward to the, to the talks that are going to be trickling out on video over the coming months. Um, in terms of announcements, I want to mention one thing, which is Closure Bridge. Uh, you can find information about Closure Bridge at closurebridge.org. Um, it is an organization that is patterned after the Rails Bridge philosophy. Its aims are to increase diversity within the closure community. Um, they're going to do that by offering free, beginner-friendly workshops that are aimed at people who are currently underrepresented, uh, underrepresented in tech. So, um, again, you can check that out at closurebridge.org. Um, they're looking for help organizing, teaching, and creating curriculum for the workshops coming up. So you can go there, you can sign up, give us your email, and we'll let you know. Um, and it's especially appropriate for me to mention this since our guest Maggie is um, uh, very much involved in um, getting that effort off the ground. So uh, yeah, you should definitely check that out. Um, so I think that's it in terms of announcements. <laughs> like I said, it's been a month since we last released a show, so I won't keep you from it any longer. I will just say thanks for listening. Today is Friday, October 4th, 2013, and this is the Cognicast. And today, I am very pleased to be joined by one of our uh, very own Cognitex, Maggie Litton. Welcome to the show, Maggie. Hi, Craig. Thanks. Uh, so, uh, we are going to start, as we always do, in theory, with me asking you for a song that is playing under our talking right now. What song should we start the show with, Maggie? We are listening to Pony by Taco Cat. Pony by Taco Cat. <laughs> awesome. I'm not even going to ask any questions. I have a feeling with a title like that, the song probably more or less speaks for itself. It's good. It's upbeat. All right. Awesome. Upbeat is good. Um, so I am excited to have you on the show. And the, the reason I'm excited to have you on the show, there's actually a bunch of reasons. Um, but one of them is that on the show, we often talk a lot about like the, the low, very low-level details of technology. We talk to Ambrose about core type. We talk to Rich about core async. But I think, uh, and, and and you know, we're very proud at Cognitech of our prowess with technology. You know, at the level of you know typing things into a computer and 
and even at the you know the other levels around like thinking about what you should type. <laughs> but I think um, when I came to, and I mentioned this on the episode where Justin interviewed me, when I think about uh, how I came to Cognitech relevance at the time, um, it was certainly because I had an interest in closure of the technology. But if I think back on what I've learned, it has a lot more to do. Uh, it's hard to measure it, I guess, but it certainly has a lot to do with the way that we do things. In other words, it's something I feel that we don't talk about as much as the tools we use to accomplish stuff is the manner in which we do it. And I think that a big part of that uh, success, a big part of our our ability to execute is is in that. And a big part of that lives in the role that we call coach. And Maggie, you are one of our coaches at Cognitect. Um, and so I think that you can rightfully claim, um, although maybe maybe you wouldn't, you're fairly modest, but I, I think you can rightfully claim a big part in in the success that we've had. So um, so it's, it's, it's awesome to talk to you because um, I just think, I don't know, I'm just trying to say that I think the coaches play a super important role. And so it's, it's great to have you on the show. Well, well thanks. Uh, that, that's a flattering lead up. Um, I, I would second, uh, I guess the, the notion about one of the things that attracted me to, uh, relevance when I joined it, that it, it was a place that was way more comfortable with meta analysis than other places I had worked. And, and that was really attractive to me. Um, I am, a, as you say, a, a coach, uh, although I have to say that I, I dislike that term and I'm trying to move away from it, uh, these days. I really prefer the somewhat old-fashioned term project manager, uh, and I'd actually like to to rehabilitate that term if possible. I think a a, uh, a limited and imperfect but somewhat useful analogy um, for this is, so feminism and project management both have some image problems right now. They have some similarly tarnished semiotics um, there are a lot of people who don't want to identify with these terms because of the negative connotations that they have. Uh, for for feminism, it's that, hey, you know, feminists represent some high vagina dentata out there, this like cabal of humorless castrating bitches who just whine about how awful men are all the time. And um, for project managers, it's that, you know, they're dogmatic bureaucrats, they're this dead overhead on your organization that produces no real value or they're dilettantes who just give orders about stuff they don't understand. And, and so why would anybody want to identify with either one of those things? You know, no wonder people don't want to use those terms. Um, and so if you ask a woman, if she's a feminist, or if you ask somebody like, if you ask any of the Cognitech coaches, for example, what's their job title? Um, you'll get some pretty evasive, and um, illogical answers from people. Um, things like, oh, I'm not a feminist. I just want everyone to have equal pay. Or uh, I I've been in multiple debates here at, at Cognitech about what to call the coaches. You know, should we call ourselves coaches or project coordinators or uh, really anything but the term project manager because that just seems so staid. Um, and I've had that experience um, myself in, in multiple professional settings where like I'll be at a, a conference or visiting a client and, and somebody asks, oh, you know, what do you do? 
And for project managers, uh, especially if they're women, and especially if we're in a group with several developers around, and especially if we're in a group with several male developers around, the answer you'll often get is some sort of self-deprecating laugh, and then, uh, oh, nothing, <laughs> I'm a project manager, uh, or, hmm. oh, I nag and, and cajole people. Um, and I, I have to say, I'm not proud of this fact, but I've both heard those answers and, and I've given those answers myself sometimes. Uh, and I think those answers are really evidence of um, a, a big self-doubt, you know, of living in that environment and, and asking yourself, do I have a right to be here? Um, as a woman, as a woman who doesn't even code, do I have a legitimate place in the tech industry? Or do I have a legitimate place at this company? Um, and I think I do. And, and so I think it behooves me to stop denigrating myself <laughs> and my work with answers like that. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, that means that really means rehabilitating the term project manager um, to bring all this back around. Because I like the term project manager better than words like coach. Because I think management is more closely associated with power and control. And those associations are sometimes negative. Um, but I'd like to suggest uh, a new way of looking at that that is not so negative. Um, but I do think what I do as a project manager, um, at the heart of what I do, is dealing with power. In, in an effective, in a fair, in a transparent way. Absolutely. And so that's why I like the term project manager. Hmm. Okay. Well, uh, I mean, th that's, wow, there's like nine things in there um, <laughs> that we could dig in on. But um, I'm going to key on the word power because that that uh, is, a, I, I, so I think it's clear even to people that have only just now met you that um, words are pretty important to you. Uh, and uh, that is a really interesting word to use in the way that you just did. Is that? And it sounds like it's kind of key to your view of the of the role. I don't know if you could if you could expand on that a bit. Yeah. Um, so uh, there is um, a woman named Shanley Kane who recently did a, a blog post about management and, and what it really is or what it should be. Uh, and she talked about how it should be you know, a kind of work that is done on a team, you know, as part of a group of people. And it should be about facilitating that team and enabling them to be as successful as possible. Uh, and this is not a unique view. There are a lot of people that talk about uh, servant leadership and that sort of thing. Um, I absolutely agree with all of that. And for me, enabling a team to be successful means helping them negotiate desire and power. And desire is, I want something that I don't have yet. It's not yet a reality. Um, it's, it's a gap, a lack. Power is the ability to realize those desires, to get that stuff and fill that gap. And that's at the key of what I think I try to help teams do as a project manager. Uh, first of all, I want to 
help people understand what they really want, how much that's really going to cost, and what's the best way to get it. And sometimes those people are clients. Sometimes those people are developers or designers or, you know, other folks that I work with here at Cognitech. Uh, the other big thing that I do there is to keep an eye on the power dynamics within the team. Um, power exists, even in flat organizations, even on agile teams with collaborative peers. Um, it exists, and, and we should not deny that, I don't think. Um, I think a software product is really a tangible manifestation of, of a team's collective will to power, honestly, and that's a, a fabulous thing. Hmm. Um, so I want to help ensure that the power dynamics within the team, that they remain transparent, that they remain fair uh, and collaborative, and, and I want to help people effectively empower themselves and others to build cool shit. Uh, does that ever get challenging? Because I know one of the things that, that happens is that there's a often a big differential between uh, the amount of power somebody perceives they have and the amount they actually have. And I'm thinking here of something that's maybe a simple version of that, which is uh, something like skill in a developer, right? Like everybody thinks, you know, more than half the people think they're above average. Is that a, is that a, a big part of, the, of managing that dynamic, is managing that gap? Um, that gap is a big part of the dynamic, the gap between how much power people think they have versus what they really have. But I actually think more common than the case you're talking about, where uh, you're talking about people who probably think they should have more power than they do. Uh, and, and, and while that certainly happens, what I see a lot more often is people who don't realize how much power they have or they don't realize how to assert it in an effective way. Uh, they don't realize that they can, um, or they don't know how. That comes up a lot more often in, in the kinds of things that I do, and, and I think I try to help uh, people with that more often than I'm trying to counterbalance people who are overexerting their power, although both, both of them come up. Hmm. Um, and I'm trying to think of maybe some good examples. Um, I mean, one example of trying to, uh, for example, um, limit somebody who is exerting too much power or um, doing it in a way that's detrimental to the team is something as simple as if you have somebody who uh, tends to hog meetings by talking all the time and, and taking up all of the, the space, uh, when I'm designing a, a retrospective meeting, for example, if I know I've got somebody like that, then I might have a more structured agenda where there's like a round robin approach where we go to each person and that person gets to, to talk um, without interruption and then we move on to somebody else. So I might do something like that, that, you know, by the very structure of it will limit that person to having no more time than other people on the team. That's one example of, of dealing with somebody like, uh, like that. Um, another example where somebody has more power than they actually realize. Um, I think there was a, a good example on a, a project that I worked on where we were working with uh, a larger company that had just done a major 
change to their technical infrastructure. And, and the new platform was pretty immature and, and pretty difficult to work in at the time because it was so immature. And it was really frustrating, you know, because we people were spending a lot of time not working on the feature that they were supposed to be working on, but just trying to deal with getting an development, development environment set up or getting tests working. And, uh, and there was this growing sense of just powerlessness before all of this, like, oh, God, we're not getting anything done. And, you know, we had a conversation. Um, I can't take credit for the outcome of this. It, it was actually um, someone else at Relevance who, who pointed us in a new direction. But uh, the direction was, you know, we, we have options here. One of those options was to go back to our sponsors and say, hey, uh, we'd like to propose working on our feature in isolation for a while until you guys get the platform straightened out. Um, this isn't, you know, the most agile way of doing things, but under the circumstances, we think we'll make more progress here. Um, and, and so we did that. You know, we asked for what we wanted. We asserted that power to work in a different way, and and they were fine with it. You know, but it took a while for people to realize, oh, it's okay for me to ask for that. I can state what I want. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That that so that to me um, touches on another another uh, thing that I have uh, gotten from working with good project managers, um, and I would include everyone that's a project manager at Cognitech in that category, which is um, you know there there are times when you're very close to the problem that's happening. Um, and that's great if, like me, you're a developer and the problem you're trying to solve is um, some very low-level technical thing because, you know, there's an aspect where you have to keep all the parts in your head and, and rearrange them and then eventually something hopefully clicks. But I, 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 the, the thing I love is, like, I'll have a conversation with you or with Mark or with Naoko and you'll say, well, did you try X? And I'm like, well, that's something that should have been obvious in retrospect because when you say it it makes a ton of sense but I, I think it's a I wonder whether it's a matter of perspective and so that's that's something that I really value from the, the project management role is, is the having a, a different sometimes a wider just just sometimes different perspective is there anything is there anything about perspective that you feel is sort of an inherent part of the role yeah I, I do think so um I think in, in other projects of my own, when I am uh, actually doing work and trying to manage it, I find that context switching very difficult. Um, I find it very difficult to realize when I am stuck in a rabbit hole. Uh, so I think, I think that perspective absolutely helps. Um, I also think it helps to have somebody who is used to looking at things that way, used to looking at something, uh, something more meta, uh, like I said, something that has to do with how things are happening as opposed to what is happening. Mm -hmm. And, and those are just kind of tendencies about how you think about the world that are pretty different. If you're used to one, the other one doesn't necessarily come naturally to you. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> I asked you for your perspective on perspective, and you gave me a good perspective. <laughs> Talk about meta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think another uh, example, uh, so we talked a little bit about power and, and helping people 
use it and assert it in a way that's the responsible and effective. Um, another aspect of what I think I do is help teams figure out, you know, what do you really want and what's it going to take to get that, um, negotiating their desire, you know, for the product we want to build, for the way that we want to work, whatever. And a good example of that is, uh, say we have a client who uh, really doesn't want to come to stand up every day, but they are reluctant to admit that because to admit that you don't want to come to stand up every day can, it can make you sound uh, disinterested or uh, you might fear that, well, if I'm not there every day, I'm going to lose control over decisions that get made and, and I don't want to lose control over anything. Uh, so they're very conflicted about this and they rarely want to come out and just plainly say, I, I don't want to come to stand up every day. So they will say, I co I'll come to stand up every day. Uh, and then like they'll come late half the time or they'll miss a lot or they'll call on their cell phone from their car and it'll be really loud and noisy. And, and that strategy starts to backfire really quickly because it irritates a team. And then when the team gets irritated, they get pissy. And when they get pissy, then the client's going to get irritated. Um, they're going to miss uh, important info that happens on standup and the team is going to be delayed, like waiting for important input from the client. Um, so it just causes all sorts of problems. And, and this is where uh, I, I like to think I can add some value. Um, I can reach out to that client and say, look, it looks like, you know, maybe you don't want to come to stand up every day or, or maybe you just can't make it to stand up every day. Let's, let's just deal with that and admit that that does not make you a bad person. Um, <laughs> let's talk about how, how we can deal with that effectively. And so maybe that means you come to stand up, but only two days a week. And those two days, you make sure that you can come on time and you can call in from a quiet place. Or maybe you delegate somebody else that's going to come to stand up in your place. Or maybe you and me just meet once a week to talk through progress. And then I will serve as your surrogate on stand up for the team throughout the rest of the week. Or, you know, maybe you need to learn to delegate some more decision making authority to the team uh, and not insist on input into every single decision. All of these are totally legitimate options, ways that you can get what you want without all these other negative consequences that you don't want. Hmm. Like what you want is okay. Right. Hmm. That's cool. So, I mean, I, I, so first of all, Maggie, I know that um, <laughs> you're a very organized person. I'm sure you have a list of things in front of you that you would be happy to talk about. Um, but I, one thing I want to ask you about, and it's a bit of a shift, but um, I guess it makes sense. You're you're writing a book right now, isn't that right? Uh, yes. Um, uh, go ahead. Uh, I'm working on a book. It does not have a title uh, as of today, um, but it's a book that is addressed to a, a certain subset of of clients that we've worked with that tend to be fairly small companies who are not tech companies who um, might be new to software development, like hiring us might be their first experience with anything more complicated than email or a static website. Um, 
So this book is really designed to help them get the most out of us as a, uh, as their software consultancy, sort of a, an ex- sort of a what to expect when you're expecting for <laughs> software project sponsors. But it's not specific <laughs> to Cognitech, right? Or is it? Um, it, I would say it's not specific to Cognitech in, in the sense that the, the stuff I'm going to talk about, I think would be useful no matter who you end up hiring. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so I, I've been working on it for, um, a few months now. Um, I was inspired to, to work on, as I said, partly as a result of some clients that we had worked with. Um, and, I felt like there was this gap of information out there, that there's this whole genre of books about how software consultancies can interact with their clients more productively. Um, these books are, are written by and for developers and project managers, and, and they're great books that I refer to all the time um, that have a lot of good advice. And I'm thinking, for example, of... Um, Jonathan Rasmussen's Agile Samurai uh, is a book I refer to constantly. Mm-hmm. Um, also, ThoughtBot's Playbook um, is a good example. It, it's up on their website. You can get it for free. Or the the guys at Less Accounting, Alan and Stephen, um, have several books um, that are aimed at people who are actually running consultancies. Uh, one of them, I think, is Run Your Business, Don't Let Your Business Run You. Um, is a really good one. So, so all these books are great, um, but our clients haven't read those books. And even if they did, I'm not sure how much sense it would make to them because um, these clients are not immersed in the culture of contemporary software development to begin with. So uh, I think a lot of it might be kind of foreign to them. And as a as a consultancy, I think it's definitely part of our job to acclimate clients like that and, and support them and help them. Um, but in my experience, that can be really hard. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. yeah. e- even though those are some really rewarding clients to work with. Um, and the reason that it's, it's so hard is, is really interesting. Uh, I think. So if I, um, referred to that most influential recent epistemologist, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, there are, you know, there are things that we know. We know we know these things. They are known knowns. Um, There are things that we know we don't know. (laughs) Your your known unknowns. Uh, There are the things that we know we don't know, the unknown unknowns. Um, What Rumsfeld doesn't talk about but uh, a guy named Slavoj Žižek appends uh, to, to that little way of looking at the world is there are also these things that we know and we don't realize that we know them. Mm. They are such an unconscious part of our worldview that we're just not aware of them. Um, and, and Žižek refers to that stuff as ideology, it's just like this unconscious part of your worldview. You take it for granted. And when you've got people from different ideologies having a conversation with each other, it's really easy for them to talk right past each other and never even know it. Yeah. 
And I think that's what happens sometimes with clients like this who just are not familiar with software development or the tech industry. Uh, they come, for example, from a background in manufacturing or in, um, I, I don't know, I, yeah. I can't think of any other good examples offhand, um, but something that is very different. Uh, and they come to work with us and we're not familiar with their ideology. Uh, they are not familiar with ours. Um, and even with the best of intentions, we sometimes don't realize the misunderstandings that we're creating. So this book is an attempt to help those people figure out how to talk to us more effectively, um, how to arm them with more information so that they can come to us better prepared uh, and hopefully be happier with the whole experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. There was a project I was on, uh, my first project at Relevance, actually, uh, when we were still Relevance. And uh, we were working with um, customer. They, you know, She came to stand up every day. She was great to work with. Um, uh, but we started to notice there were some times where um, things were happening that weren't favorable. And digging into it a little bit, it, it, it fell out of us saying things in the middle of stand up that didn't make sense to her, but it would be in that way that so often happens in conversations where there's not an opening to inquire. And so I actually uh, took to um, when I would have conversations with her later in the day, which was frequent, we would you know, say, oh, we're working on this thing. We're not sure you want to do it. Let's just call her up and see what's up. I'd say, hey, as long as we're talking, was there anything that was said today that you did not fully understand? And it was... Uh, pretty humbling how often the answer was yes. I mean, just something like, um, she's like, I don't know what the word refactor means. And we're like, well, why, why would you, right? I mean, and and yet we hurl that term around left and right. Oh, but we're, today we're going to spend time refactoring the, the this doohickey or whatever. And so uh, it was absolutely a, what would that be? That would be a unknown known, I guess, <laughs> right? Um, and so, yeah, no, that's that's great. I mean, I, I, I think this is a fantastic idea for a book because you know, I'm just recently, like a lot of people do all the time, we've had some tradesmen in the house doing work, you know, drywall or whatever. And, um, you know, I'm reasonably well-versed. I know the difference between a joist and a stud, for example. But but at the same time, like, I'm not an expert. And, and you know, I'll be talking to these people who are experts, and they'll say things. And I'll be like, I think I know what that means, but the conversation has already moved on. So it's it's absolutely because they do it all the time and I and I don't and I think that's the kind of what I was trying to get at is that your book is addressing that gap is as consultants we can't help the fact that we've done this over and over and over again even aside from the ideology we've just done it a bunch and this might be somebody's first experience working with um, people that create software so yeah I think I think it'd be great to have, be able to hand this book to people yeah and and the example you gave is a great one and and in that case at least everybody was lucky enough to have a client who was willing to, you know, to ask the uncomfortable question, willing to basically raise her hand and say, oh, yeah, I didn't understand that. Mm -hmm. a, a lot of people um, interacting with software engineers for the first time will be too intimidated to do that. Even people that are experts in their own fields, uh, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people to admit I, I don't know what you're talking about. Sure. Nobody wants to look stupid, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, 
Um, or they just may not even realize that their concept of what you're talking about is completely different. Um, I I once had a client uh, call me up after stand up one day and say, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm really concerned about something that I heard one of the developers mentioned today. Uh, they mentioned that you're a Mac shop. So does that mean that the software you're building for me won't work on windows? Um, and, you know, that's a pretty big fundamental misunderstanding from a guy who was absolutely uh, well-versed in his own field, which was quite a, a complicated field. Um, and so I'm really glad that, you know, he, he did call me up and we straightened that out. But I'm sure that that kind of thing happens all the time and we don't realize it. Oh, yeah. Well, one of my favorite practices um, that we do um, – is the risk assessment. And we've talked before on the show about things like retros and risk assessments, uh, where the retro is let's get together. And I think everybody, well, I think most people know retro is you get together and let's figure out what has not gone as well as it could or has gone well. And and so that we can acknowledge that and use it going forward. But the risk assessment is looking in the opposite direction. What's coming up that we're concerned about and are we mitigating? And the thing I always liked about risk assessments was um, – was that when you got together and everybody got a chance to say what they're most concerned about, it was an incredibly frequent occurrence that the client would say, I think X is a really big deal and I think it's going to be a problem. And the technologist would say, well, that's like an hour's work, right? Like that's not something we're even concerned with and that, and just identifying those disconnects. And the other way happened uh, as well, uh, where the technologist would say, this is a really big deal and then the uh, the client would be like really that's not like that seems on the surface similar to this other thing that you guys knocked out in no time so um, yeah I mean that's just great to I, I always love the experience of coming out of that going that was a hit that was a landmine and we totally just dug it up and disarmed it by by acknowledging it so it's cool mm-hmm yeah yeah uh, um so I'm trying to think if, if there are other book tidbits I can um well, so I would ask this, is, is there, is there like a, I mean, I don't want it to be reductionist, but is there like a key, if you had to boil it down to, I can't give you my book, but I can give you one piece of advice. Is there something that you would arm the consultants of the world with, say, tell your clients this or, or teach your clients this? Um, well, the chapter I'm working on at the moment actually is um, a, a list of things for clients not to do. You know, it's like here are here are uh, some things that whether you realize it or not will really backfire uh, on you in okay. your dealings with the team. And uh, one of those we, we sort of alluded to earlier. One of those is uh, please don't call into meetings from your cell phone while you're driving <laughs> in a really noisy environment. Yeah. Um, because that is really hard to deal with on a daily basis. Um, th- that is one. Um, and and I'm I'm still working through some of those, but uh, that's probably going to be the first chapter that I get polished. Awesome! That sounds great. I, I am genuinely looking forward to reading this book because, um, you know, I, I know it's not being written to me, but it's always just so interesting to see. You know, it sounds like one of those books where I'm going to read. I'm going to go, "Yep, that totally happens. Yep, that totally happens." Interspersed with, um, you know, oh yeah, I've never really thought about it because, uh, you know, I don't have the same perspective as you. So I, I'm, I'm genuinely looking forward to it. Um, maybe this is a rude question. You can feel free to use the epithet of your choice on me. But uh, 
Do you have an idea when it's going to be done? Uh, I would hope by early next year, by like shortly after the holidays. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. And I'm looking forward to what title you come up with. I mean, I think, I think you had mentioned it in an internal chat room and there were all sorts of amusing and quite honestly terrible suggestions. But uh, yeah. Yeah, nothing nothing really uh, worthwhile has, has appeared yet. Isn't the trend these days to have like a two-word title and then a 25-word subtitle? Uh, yes, it has to have a couple of words and a colon right. and then a subtitle. Of course, right, yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. Well, we can people uh, listeners can play that game at home. Uh, but I want to get back to um uh picking your brain on some of the other things. Uh what's uh, what else should we I mean, like I said, Meg, I know how organized you are, but this has probably been the show's been on your mind. What else should we talk about? Uh I I would love to talk about Lacanian psychoanalysis as it relates to software development. Uh, I, as long as you explain what that <laughs> means to me, then I would love to do that. So, please proceed. Uh, so uh, Jacques Lacan uh, was a uh, psychoanalyst who was uh, a French psychoanalyst active primarily in like the 50s through the 70s or so. And his work has actually been really influential in uh, literary theory in political theory and, and a lot of other fields beyond psychology. Uh, in fact, probably more influential in, in those other fields than in practical psychology today. Um, but a few months ago, I had uh, actually been rereading some books from grad school that uh, dealt with some Lacanian concepts and was really fascinated by some of the connections uh, that I was making to them in, in my work. And so specifically what I, I'd like to talk about is... Um, Lacan has this uh, this way of thinking about the world where there's like three realms, and I'm gonna like drastically oversimplify. That'd be good for um, me. His, his concepts here. Um, so there's the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. Uh, the the imaginary. Uh, so this is imaginary, not in the sense of like made up, but imaginary as in images. You know, like how things look. Mm. Uh, and he says that. Uh, you know, this this is about people identifying with something because of the way it looks or because it looks like something they would like to emulate themselves. Um, and I think all of these three concepts, imaginary, symbolic, and the real, are useful to understand because they help me figure out why people want something, uh, which in turn helps me figure out, okay, is this a good thing? Do they really want this? Uh, maybe understanding why they want this will help us figure out how to get it. So that's how it all actually feeds back in together. Okay, makes sense. Um, so the imaginary, th this one I, I think is is the one that's most of a stretch to relate to software development, but I do see some aspects of it applying. Um, so I do think, you know, there is a sense that some people... They think that they want to be able to Rails app because that's what all the young entrepreneurial types do. And I'm a young entrepreneurial type, or I like to fancy myself that way. So I want a Rails app. Uh, or um, actually, a good example of this is um, at Jen Meyer's Strange Loop talk a couple of months ago. She quoted Sally Ride saying, 
you can't be what you can't see. So, uh, for example, if, if I am going to apply for a job somewhere and I see, oh, should I even bother to apply for that job? I, I don't see any women developers there. Like I'm, I might decide I don't want to work there because I don't see anybody like myself there. Um, and this may be not on an entirely conscious level. All of this may go on. Um, or I'm pretty sure that we probably get some business because people say, I want to be like Rich Hickey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm really smart. Um, I want to associate myself with the cutting edge. I, I want a closure app. Um, so all of these are things that don't necessarily have to do with, you know, the reality of whatever it is you want to accomplish, but it's something about the way things look, the image or the reputation they have in the world that motivates you to be like them. It, it's useful to know if that is influencing you mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. Okay, yep. Um, next, you've got the symbolic. And this is... Uh, basically, the symbolic realm involves using words and stories, you know, to make some kind of sense out of the world because the world is just this like chaotic mass of, you know, like colors and sensations and surfaces and and it doesn't necessarily make any sense. You have to construct some story uh, that makes it all make sense. And that story is is the symbolic order that you assign to things. Um, so, for example, uh, a retrospective is, is a good example of that. Uh, we're going to have a retrospective, and in that meeting, we're basically going to construct our collective theory and story about what happened over the last iteration and what it really means and what we should do as a result of it. We're going to make up a story about what just happened, um, or, you know, providing a status report or using any project management tool. That's what you're doing. You're constructing some symbolic order to represent what actually happens on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and you're doing this because it's really hard to communicate uh, to other people without that story. Um, it provides this meaning and, and structure that, that makes it a lot easier for somebody else to, to grok what's actually happening, uh, especially in software development where a lot of it's really intangible and abstract and nobody's going to be able to touch it. Um, so I think that one relates really well to software development. I think everybody has been in the situation with their project management tool where um, clearly... Uh, there's reality, there's your cards in the tool, and there's gap. <laughs> yeah. Um, and how closely do you want to align those things? And how much effort do you want to spend in closely aligning those things? These are important judgment calls mm -hmm. to make on any project. Because on the one hand, you do need a coherent story. Even if it is a depressing story, you need a coherent story, especially in a consultancy, to tell your client what's happening. Uh, the, the project management tool, your Kanban wall, whatever, is, is one way to do that. Uh, so it does need to uh, approximate reality in some form. Otherwise, it's a total waste of time. Um, 
And if you, if you use it well, it can be an effective tool that is worth the time. On the other hand, uh, and this is a really important skill for project managers to master. Uh, on the other hand, you can certainly spend way too much time trying to enforce a coherent story into the project management tool or trying to make the tool more detailed, make your stories more detailed, add tasks in there, mark them complete when they're done, um, you know, keep it as up to date, as up to the minute as possible. It's, it's really important to realize when you're spending too much effort on that. Now, I think most developers, um, their threshold for that is, is pretty darn low. Uh, and I think they're very sensitive to when you're spending too much time on that. Probably true as a whole, yeah. Um, for, for project managers, uh, I think we, we probably like more of that. Our, our threshold for that is a lot higher. Um, but I think that's always an important thing that I try to keep in mind is when uh, realizing when I'm starting to harp on uh, tool hygiene to the detriment <laughs> of actual work. Um, and, and also recognizing when is the fact that the stuff in the tool doesn't make any sense. When is that appropriate? You know, because sometimes it doesn't make any sense because there's a huge problem in reality because reality doesn't make sense. And in that case, papering it over in the tool or slapping, you know, a big green light on your status report doesn't make reality any better. It just makes a nice symbolic story. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a real analogy to that in code where I don't think we're going to dive into it, but. You know, uh, I mean, discovering the abstractions is a huge part of getting the right solution to a problem. And, I, you know, it's very easy to make mistakes uh, 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 all, you know, so you could surround the solution and still have something suboptimal, right? You can err in any direction, in other words. So I, I think there's a real analogy to be had there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's doubly fascinating that all of this is um, that, that your project management tool is a representation of code, which itself is an abstraction. <laughs> right. And there are abstractions in that abstraction. It's, yeah. It's like... And the project management tool is itself a program that has a set of abstractions that are presented to you in various ways. Yeah, it's crazy, right? The, the, it's, uh, honestly, sometimes it's amazing to me that, that we get anything done at all, <laughs> right? And, and it's really fascinating to me that you are focusing um, here in this conversation on... Um, psychology, I said this before, all the hard problems are people problems, right? All of these, these abstractions, these, you know, project management tools are all there to address the, the people part, even stuff like syntax, right? The computer doesn't care. The computer just wants a bunch of numbers that tell it what transistors to flip next. The rest of that is all for people. Uh, so I don't know. It's just psychology is probably something that as an industry, we are under leveraging by several orders of magnitude. So it's really cool to hear you uh, bringing some of your expertise from that area into it. Uh, well, well, thanks. I, I'm glad it's entertaining for for a few other people out there as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I definitely think me. so. Absolutely, yeah. Sorry, uh, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no, that, that was a cool interruption. Um, I, I love a plan so that we can deviate from it. I'm good at finding uh, justifications for stuff. So, you know, uh, that's right. Um, no, that's cool. So um, 
let's see, we were talking about um, some psychologist whose name I have already forgotten. <laughs> yes, Jacques Lacan. Right, right. Um, and the the last part uh, of his his theories that I, that I was talking about was, uh, so there are these three realms, the imaginary, the symbolic. Right, right, right. right. The real. The real. Uh, we yeah. talked about the first two. The real is, you know, what it, what it sounds like. What is actually happening on a day-to-day basis in reality? What are you actually doing? And uh, for Lacan, the thing is, you can never really get at that. You can never really fully describe it uh, in your tool, in your, you know, language, um, the imaginary, the symbolic, nothing is ever really going to be able to describe what's actually going on in the real. There's always inevitably this gap. Um, it is moment to moment experience, things that are happening. Um, and the, like I said, I think the, the lesson that I have taken away from rereading some of that stuff, um, the lesson for project management is to, uh, to understand that gap. And, and to realize when you're you're reaching a point of diminishing returns, trying to to close it, um, and, and also to to figure out how much work you do need to do to um, to try to give people some idea of of what's happening, even if you'll never be able to uh, to fully get it right. Hmm. Hmm. That's very. I, I'm gonna have to noodle on that one. That's. Uh... Yeah, I'm glad. I'm lucky. I get to listen to the podcast several times. So, you know, when I edit it, I'll be able to. That'll sink in a bit more. It sounds it's like something I really need to kind of stick in my brain and let it percolate for a while. Cool. Wow. Uh, I knew this would be good. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, I'm just trying to think. Uh, well, uh, what what else, Maggie? What else should we try to fit in here? Um. Well, we've we've talked a lot, so I, I think maybe the one one thing that we can fit in um, is the matrix, which I wanted to talk about. Oh yeah, please, yeah, just the uh, first one though, right? Yeah, just the first. All one. All right, good. Um, so most people are familiar with that movie, I'm guessing. Um, the matrix is a really good example of this this common fantasy, uh, I think that that people have about. Um, this this fantasy of disempowerment where there's some vast conspiracy out there that is controlling everything about your existence and they're, they're kind of secret and hidden and uh, the only way to to really break free from that and and assert your own identity and and authority is is through some kind of violence you know so um if you're if you're part of the matrix, you, you have to uh, free yourself by kickboxing a thousand Agent Smiths mm-hmm. or, or something. Um, and this is, uh, like I said, a really common perception. Uh, I find this constantly in, in working with people that we're not used to asserting power in any way other than either through violence, that's easy to imagine. Um, you know, like if you're a little kid, you have a tantrum and you don't get what you want, um, or you get into a fist fight, or uh, you yell at people. Uh, that's one reaction. Uh, the other really common way of asserting power is through passive aggression. Mm. 
Um, and sometimes it's just really hard for people to see any other model for how you might assert power and autonomy. And I, I want to, first of all, not be so judgy uh, about all that. You know, people tend to throw, uh, especially people tend to throw passive aggression around a lot as this, this cheap insult. But uh, I just want to say it's common for a reason. And that reason is that speaking up uh, about something honestly and directly is, is actually uh, pretty hard. You know, asserting power honestly and fairly is hard, scary, exhausting work that most of us are just not used to doing on a regular basis. So uh, first of all, let's cut ourselves some slack. <laughs> um, that's why this fantasy of disempowerment, I think, exists, mm. um, is that it's so hard to actually just do it in a way that is um, is not so dramatic. Um, so I, I find this a lot on projects, and I find this is my biggest challenge as a project manager, is to help teams and individuals figure out other ways, ways other than violence or um, um, dictatorial attitudes or passive aggression, other ways uh, to assert authority. I really think that's at the heart of what I try to do as a project manager. I, I, I cannot by any means claim that I'm always successful at it, uh, but I think that really is, in a nutshell, what my job is on a daily basis. So that, I mean, I don't, so I don't want to, I don't want to feed into the problem we talked about at the beginning of the show where, uh, you know, we're reductionist or, or, um, not proud of the good work that you do as a project manager. But I mean, I can't help but observe that there's a, another tie into psychology, which is that's, that's an aspect of being, uh, of almost being a therapist to the, the parties involved which I think is a kind of a classic view of, and a positive one, I think, in a lot of ways, of, of what project managers do, is they're there to, to address, you know, to, like, talk people off the ledge, more or less, right? Like, to, to help them work together and figure out, like, just how to be nice to each other and work together. I don't, I don't know, I'm not expressing that well, but, I, you know, yeah, some, something like that. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely that aspect to it. And, and I think I have probably even given some jokey version of that answer to, to people in the past where sure. they ask what I do. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, Maggie, this has been awesome. Uh, but we are coming up on the close of our window, and we both do have many things to do today. As I've mentioned this many times on the show before, today is a Friday. And uh, people might think, oh, 20% time. It must be nice to have a slow day. After you know the doing client work all day, uh, the, the answer is that Fridays are easily for me at least, and I suspect the same is true for you. My busiest day of the week. Um, so, uh, is there just? But I do want to make sure. Is there anything else like that we absolutely definitely should talk about this time uh, before you go, or or uh, we can always save stuff for next time because I can tell that there are many things that we could talk about, and it would be fascinating to have you back on to to explore those as well. I, I think this is good enough for round one. Cool. Well, of course, there's always one more question on this show, which is, what music should we play on the way out? We should play Queen by Janelle Monet. All right. Excellent. 
Uh, that is coming up in the background right now. And I will thank you again, Maggie, for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time today. Like I said, this is a very, very busy day, but I'm glad that you did because I found the conversation absolutely fascinating um, uh, and, and educational in many ways, starting with the very small of, um, you know, I'm going to start using that term uh, project manager and use it uh, proudly and as a compliment. So I uh, thank you for that. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. I'm a feminist. And a project manager. A feminist and a project manager. Uh, that is fantastic. Those are both good things to be. All <laughs> awesome. right. Cool. Well, thanks again, Maggie. We're, we're looking forward to having you back on the show at some point. And, uh, and we, of course, we appreciate everybody out there in listener land for taking the time to tune into our show. And uh, we will catch you next time on The Cognicast. have been listening to the Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech Inc., whom you can find on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Maggie Litton on Twitter at Maggie Litton, M-A-G-G-I-E-L-I-T-T-O-N. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex Ward, Damian Mack, Jamie Kite, Justin Gatlin, Kelly Ross, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Russ Olson, Sam Bumbach, and Stuart Sierra. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. I wonder, will this be my final act tonight? And tell me what's the price of fame? Am I a sinner with my skirt on the ground? Am I a freak for dead? Am I a freak? Am I a freak for dead? Don't judge